Yeah, you can snap along if you want. Jesse's going. You're kind of nailing it with the music lately. Well, listen. Drew. You think so? I thought this song. <laughs> I like this. I admit that this song was a long shot. Actually, like most things that we do about this podcast, Elizabeth, I seem to just try and make my life harder and harder. <laughs> And this season, for the most part, with a few exceptions, I've tried to find a song that had some relevance to our guest, which has worked out, but it's just not easy to do because it, finding the right song for each episode has taken up way too much time, like more time than I'd ever like to admit. And I found this song by a group or someone called Mix Sound, M-I-X-A-U-N-D, and the song is called Office Hours. Yes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> and if you can't tell... What are those? Exactly. And I'm also realizing that this choice of music at this moment might not make sense to most people listening. Um, so I'm hoping that everybody listens and by the end of our conversation, people will actually reflect on the music and realize that Office Hours was a significant choice for this um, this episode. And by the way, if you can't tell, the creators of this song make like stock music for corporate videos. If this doesn't sound like a corporate video, that's weird because I really like this a lot. Anyway, so there we go. And by the way, the parking around here is not normally like this. They're filming a movie, which I I think is Fletch, a remake of the movie Fletch with John Hamm. I can't wait to see him walk down the street. I know. I said, well, they're filming at night, though. I think. I think so. But there's two things. One, if if you see me just run out in the middle of our podcast, it's because John Hamm goes by. I'll be right behind you. Or I'm getting towed. So like if if I run out, it's one of those two things. Jesse was like, "Who's John Ham?" Yeah, like, I'm not good with that stuff. Jesse. I know, I know. You came in from work today. Were you are you working over in the design building or? We work at the Innovation and Design Building in the Seaport. Yeah, yeah. So I came over from there. Yeah, we've been back in the office since the day the governor said. A certain percentage could return. Everybody? Well, I think he said 25%. Yeah, so, so you were. So on we've that. been following the science and the um, government, but we're a creative group and proximity matters. So we're, we're all coming home. Am I right? Alcus Manfredi was one of the early tenants in that building right after Jamestown bought it for their reposition. Is that right? That's true. Yeah. Yes, we were pioneers of going down there before the seaport had filled all the way in, and we were lonely, and Jamestown was true to their promise, though, about bringing activity and life and other creative agencies and the the mass. Anyway, it, it the vision's coming true now. It's being realized. Yes. Cool. How long have you been in that space now? Oh, it feels like yesterday, but we've probably been there five years now. It's a, That's a great property. You know, Elizabeth, we, we worked on, you may remember this, and Mark and John and David all know this, but we were engaged by Jamestown. It was probably 2015 and we worked on that container project. And I will say we learned a lot from working with Jamestown. I think that they fundamentally kind of understand storytelling and understand um, place. So I think in the in the earlier, not earliest, but earlier Graffito years, you know, we learned a lot from our clients. I think Jamestown is on that list of being a client or a past client that I, I think they get it. I think they really do get it. They totally get it. And Michael Phillips, yeah. he's the dreamer. Yeah. And he transfers that energy to everybody who he works with. And and when we I can still remember the day that we first met Michael and he was courting us to move there. Um and when we, we were with our broker and he was spinning this story of creative agencies co-locating and, you know, science and 
advertising and makers and artists were all going to be living together. And we were sitting around the table kind of thinking, really? <laughs> but it came true. Yeah. And I mean, they've got some credibility. I mean, they did it at Chelsea Market too in New York City. Right. They did it in Atlanta. They yep. Yes. So um, it, it was terrific working with Michael. And then you guys helped deliver the vision there. Um, so, and that's kind of what we do in our practice, yeah. right? Is placemaking and developing community and relationships, just like you guys, about putting the right people and things together to build that magnet. <laughs> and we're off and running, Drew. Yeah. Here we go. Uh, we're going to start with some news. Disappointed to hear from Jesse that perhaps this publication isn't the best source of news. But on June 17th, 2021, from BizNow Boston. Sorry, BizNow. Uh, I didn't sit. Okay, go ahead. Keep <laughs> Explain going. yourself. Yeah. Ex a record number of tenants looking at downtown Boston office. This headline just stuck out because just being downtown right now, for the most part, I, it's just hard to believe. But the um, there's a CBRE report detailing what a researcher calls the first concrete sign of a market rebound. Today, approximately 110 companies are looking for a combined 3.4 million square feet in the Boston area. This is up from 2.3 million square feet in Q1 of 2020. And the headline's downtown Boston? Yeah, downtown Boston area. Is it all life science? <laughs> we, we've talked about that during one of our episodes. I don't think it is. I mean, it's, it's just a mix of everything. It's, it's actually hard to... When, when Drew first mentioned this to me, you know, right before you came in, I was like, where's that? What's that from? BizNow? Which, which we won't get into. I think they do great events. From a journalism perspective, I'm just not, not as convinced. Um, but do we buy that, that there's that much demand in downtown Boston in the commercial business district? Well, look, there's, it's 110 companies from this report, which okay. is not a ton. So it's possible that there are companies out there that just want to be in Boston and now's the opportunity to do right. it. Well, look at it this way. It's the best news we've heard in a long time, right? Yeah, and, and it's growing. So we want that to be true. We That's want exciting. It to be true. And it looks like smaller footprint is also part That's of That's true. That's what we're seeing. Yeah. Much smaller tenants. And the um, explanation for this basically is that the vaccine rollout has been so successful that it just sped up this demand that people saw the light at the end of the tunnel in terms of getting back to the office. So I, I buy that. I buy that. Totally. There's also part of this article that says, we are seeing steady demand for office space and are being asked more questions about the benefits that an office building can and should deliver in terms of health, wellness, and environment, which Jesse is right up our alley. That's sort of what we're all about, right? Yeah. And I think, you know, Elizabeth, this is your practice, yeah? Exactly. This is what we both do, I think. And, and it goes back to how do you make a community or a building or a, an office be a magnet because we're no longer living in the world of mandate, mm -hmm. right? That you don't have to go to the office. So so what does that mean in terms of, uh, and I, I don't like the word amenities, right? Because yeah. that means that's extra super, superfluous stuff. It's really what's the glue mm. and what do the tenants Want you talked about this last week or two weeks ago with CA Web and Kindle Square about what is it that the people need and want to be successful? So they're more must-haves than amenities, right? I, yeah. I think it really if you have healthy people, you have productive workers and engaged, right? It's common sense in a way. Yeah. First of all, thanks for listening to our podcast. You might be the only guest that we've had that's listened. Oh, but it was terrific. <laughs> I love your use of the term magnet. And is that something you've been using recently because it, it's, or has that always been the philosophy? 
I think we've been able to articulate it more succinctly after this pandemic because the pandemic gave us, while it was a horrible, terrible thing, the silver lining in it has it's given given us the license, and I mean the big us, the all of us, um, to given us the license to be naive and ask innocent questions and think about really, do we have to keep doing it the same way? Yeah, interesting. Yeah, that's powerful. Most people we've talked to can find silver linings in what's been happening, which I think is great. And if you're able to apply that to your practice, um, which I we're definitely going to talk more about. But I just have to add one thing. Talking about BizNow, I will say one of the things... I'm going to take up for BizNow now. Please. One of the things they do well is create community, right? When they have the in-person... Um, presentations, it brings us all together. Yeah, their events are great. Yeah. <laughs> I think perhaps the idea was that they, they're not a place you necessarily go for the news. And, and, and um, But but it, it, again, our Slack channel pulled through. Somebody posted this. Yeah, no, I think people, I think many people in the real estate community read it. And I think that um, <laughs> it, it can be a very reliable source of information. I agree, Jesse. Thank you. Can I ask you a quick question on that article? Yeah. Something that Elizabeth yeah. mentioned that I think is super interesting. Please. So, the article mentions, and Elizabeth, you agreed that there's a lot of demand from, we say, smaller tenants, meaning smaller square footage requirements. Is it fair to assume that the requirement, the smaller requirements are not just from small, quote, tenants, but might be from big companies that are just reducing their footprints? I mean, there's been a lot written about this, but are you seeing in your practice some very big businesses that may have looked at previously a couple hundred thousand square feet are now really their requirements are a fraction of that. Is that, is that true? Cause we hear a lot about it. I hear a lot about it too. In our practice, yeah. that is not true. Interesting. We are not seeing that yet. Um, or, or if we ever will, I don't know what we're seeing is people are, um, putting their arms around their most valuable asset, their employees and bringing them together more. So it's more about consolidation and we're doing the new mass mutual headquarters and that's yep. about bringing you know uh, two or three thousand people together um, so we haven't seen in our practice that kind of uh, what do they call it the spoke spoken hub yeah, yeah, hub, and yeah. Spoke. yeah. hub and spoke yeah <laughs> thank you <laughs> so that's interesting so they're not necessarily just downsizing and keeping it the same they're actually looking at their space and just reevaluating how to do that to make it more collaborative or so I, I think it's I like to think of it like this before the pandemic let's say 20 to 30 or even 40 percent depending on how you measure it of your real estate corporate office space was underutilized because people were on vacation or they were sick or they were traveling right so that's a lot of square feet that seems like be. a high percentage yeah it's not when you add all that up. Wow. And this is across corporate America. Mm. So just that alone would say it was time to start rethinking how you're using space. Yeah. Now couple that with the hybrid world that we're all talking about. So that's even less utilization. So if you're a big real estate user, you, I would think you would, well, we hope you are rethinking how you use that square footage. And, and so what's happening in that area? Well, one, we know people will always remember what six feet is. Even if we all go, I think we're going quickly back to, you know, with vaccinations. It, it's, it's rapidly going back to 
a new normal, but that's not that far mm-hmm. from the old normal. Yeah. So, so all your real estate, so you're going to have greater spacing. So the days of dense packing and benching are over because that's, we said this before the pandemic, but that's just not human centric that, um, so you're going to have greater spacing. So you're going to have more square right, foot. So you still feet need the person. space. Yes. Yeah. And then I'm obsessed these days with, okay, what is the future of the workplace? And I'm so totally focused on career long learning. So how, because what used to happen in 10 years with technology and management philosophies are now happening in a year or six months. So that tells you there's going to be this, or there is a huge need for learning and training and upskilling or whatever you want to call it. So as you look through corporate America, the dollars that are being spent on, I'm calling it learning, but education, uh, I don't like the word training because that feels like somebody's doing Mm -hmm. something to you, but Mm -hmm. that learning. And so how does space provide the learning, both intuitively, organically, and very planned ways. So I think you're going to hear a lot about that as we move out of this pandemic and move into our next chapter. How do you make those changes? What are some things you can do to implement? Well, you think about learning styles, right? I've spent some time now with Michael Horn from Harvard, who's written the book on disruptive um, education, which he would be a great person for your podcast. Um, but thinking about what, how we learn and, you know, I'm grossly simplifying, but you learn by listening, by doing and, um, tactile learning and project-based learning and problem-based learning. So designing spaces that allow for those types of learning in the right settings, right? So acoustically private settings, open, transparent settings, et cetera, et cetera. And then the employee will, um, get to choose. It's all about choice now, right? Because we no longer have to be tethered to a workstation because we don't, we have, um, you know, wireless now, so we can go anywhere we want. Um, so right. our, our, our workstation with a monitor and a hard drive, like that's gone. We're never going, ever going back to that. Well, Maybe you, some designers, right, yeah, Drew? I mean, well, I'll always preference that. Big compute, big monitors. I think you, you'll have to go back to some of that, but mostly you're free. You're untethered now. Yeah. Um, and so let's let the people do, go where they need to go to do the function. Form follows function. That's what I'm trying to say. Well, the other, the other theme that feels very consistent with so much of what we've been talking about at Graffito is, is the theme of rapid acceleration of rate change, right? So you were saying, you know, your 10-year learning cycle and learning a new technology is now six months or a year. That, that transcends to how we think about the evolution of physical space and, and making sure that within these offices we're providing for flexibility. We're actually thinking about the same thing on the ground floor. When you think about the pace at which retail is moving, like how do we design spaces for flexibility? It sounds like we we're talking about is how do you design office space for flexibility? Because 2024 is a long way away. There may be new technology in the office, new ways of learning and experiencing that transform the way we engage in these offices. So really interesting. Were we ripe for this type of movement now? Like in, in your experience in working in this field, has there always been some sort of like, whether it's every five years or 10 years, some sort of movement or period of time that forces us to rethink? Is is this just like we were due for something like this anyway? 
Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think so. We were People in our industry will tell you we've been talking about these things for the last five years before the pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. So they were just beginning to bubble up to mainstream and now, bam. Accelerated, right. yeah. This happened, it's like, well, we have no choice. We're just moving forward. Like we have to, the pandemic is forcing us to do it. And it, it's probably a good thing to just move it forward, so. I think it's it's talking about more human-centric mm-hmm. environments, mm-hmm. right? And and now we're, because of the health and wellness aspect and the fear of being sick and all those things are driving it, but when I'm also thinking about what the future is, um, and we've been living through the last year about of what's your hybrid mm-hmm. and what's hybrid working going to do to our culture and all of those things, I, I'm kind of now moved, I, of course, we're still thinking about that, but moved on to refocus the thinking on it's all about the work. Yeah. Right? Like, let's start with what are we trying to do, which is speed of innovation. And if we're not innovating, we're out of business. Mm -hmm. So how do we kind of reframe that around the actual work and then build out from there? This next article sounds like it's contradicting the first one, but there is an explanation. The headline is, first of all, it's from the Boston Globe, June 22nd. The headline is almost 40% of remote workers in mass won't be back in the office until January at the earliest. The subheader, by the way, is nearly 40% of remote workers may not be back until January 22nd at the earliest. Just in case so, you missed the headline. So the, the sub, they need to work on their sub headlines. These are uh, very redundant. Uh, anyway, so there's a survey that the Massachusetts Competitive Partnership did. They surveyed 113,500 employees in the state working for 110 companies is that number again, primarily east of Interstate 495. So definitely Boston region. This says roughly half of the employees, 48%, who are now remote are expected to work to the office by September. And then in January, it goes up even more. So I don't know. I think the the main reason for that shift, according to this article, is just the hybrid arrangements um, that we talked about. And I think the demand for this office is they're seeing these numbers and saying what's going to happen in Q1. And they're like, yeah, we need to start moving now because people will be back. But still, many of them untethered to, they're not tethered in a way they previously were to a physical place, which again, changes the way they relate to the office. And fundamentally, is it going to change the way we just think about working in our offices? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and and I also see this number and I'm thinking, well, they got a long way to go because around here, it seems pretty quiet. Yeah. But another sign that we think things are picking up is the parking garages have shut off their the little apps you can use to get deals. We noticed one day they were just gone. And now you go into a parking garage and they're full again. And I think that's because also as they're forecasting people are coming back to work, those employees don't want to take the train or public transit. So they're starting to gobble up parking spaces. So all this stuff is like we're getting ready for 2022 almost in a way for like this big surge. Yeah. I think the one thing I'm trying to reconcile is a report of all this demand, forget life science. We've talked about that a lot in lab space, but demand and um, we'll call it transactional velocity of leases, like more people looking to sign leases linked up with, you know, pursuant to the BizNow article with the reality that, I think many corporations are still in this ongoing evolution and including Graffito, by the way, it sounds like Elkis Manfredi has it figured out a little bit better because it's objective. It's based on the state's guidelines 
figuring out how people are going to return and how they're going to use the office and in what quantities people are going to return and when. So I'm trying to reconcile those two articles because, you know, I, I think this is kind of a hard time to make a 10-year lease commitment or make commitments right now, just not knowing what 2022 is going to look like. That's that's the way I feel. But Exactly. I, I think you're hitting the nail on the head. A lot of companies are talking about back to what's your hybrid and what... Do, and So then I say, why are we talking about that in addition to the obvious? It's really focused on talent management, right? Talent acquisition and talent retention. And what the employee has a huge voice right now that maybe they've never had more power than they have today or we have today. Um, so how do you balance that with the speed of innovation with your real estate when there is absolutely, you know, we, we're all, we live in, in Boston and Cambridge. We base everything on data. There is no data to base this on, to guide us. So it's exciting. I, I'm having the best time I've had in my career right now. Is that because you have more creative liberty? Like there are less knowns. Are, are you able to be more creative and entrepreneurial in your practice right now? I would say it's not, we're able to ask questions that we were, that nobody ever asked before. Yeah. It, you know, you're able to say, so why do you do it that way? Mm -hmm. And people will actually answer you <laughs> and talk about it because they know maybe there is a different way. We've had the shock. Right. And maybe they're willing, there's they're a better to be challenged. way. Right. They're willing to be challenged. I feel like clients probably came to you because you're an expert and they want you to do something for them that they obviously can't do. Thinking about interior architecture and everything else. Do you think they listen more now because you have more experience working with all these, their competitors or other clients? Do you think they're more receptive to what you really have to say about change and sort of what the office should be like? Absolutely. Or they say they could well, still be stubborn, because, you know? Well, because everybody wants a window into somebody else's life, right? How, how do they do it? And, and what does that mean to us? There's not one right answer, mm -hmm. obviously, but um, using us as a portal to see how other industries work. And at Elkis Manfredi, we're incredibly diverse. So we go from hospitality to life science to higher education to corporate headquarters, um, you know, on and on. And we're not siloed in those markets. All of us work across all of that, kind of like you guys. We're very, very, so we bring that expertise. So our corporate clients, what they want to know right now is what are the higher ed clients doing? Mm. How are they teaching and working with, you know, their students because they are the future employees and they know something that corporate America doesn't. And the higher eds want, obviously, the relationship with, we're calling it industry, to come and be embedded in the higher ed world. So everybody's, it's a big melting pot right now. Between those silos, are there more similarities with how you view what the interior should be like more now than before? No, no. I mean, in a lot of places, that's true. It is siloed. But at Elkis Manfredi, we believe, like, I think yeah, that's where your us. question is going, that it's, it, it's simple. It's all about building the community. Right. And those things are the same, whether it's in higher ed or corporate America or in a hotel today. Right. So it's what are those personal things about those connections, starting with one human and building out from that. As a designer and, and uh, somebody that sort of leads branding exercises, 
a lot of people come to say, well, have you worked with, you know, life sciences before? And I'm like, you know, the process is going to be the same. And, and we're going to look at things in a very similar way. So it's, it's refreshing to hear that because it reaffirms sort of my belief that, you know, if you do things methodically and you have a system, you can really apply it to a lot of different industries. Right. Actually, you, you remind me now, talking about process, one of the things we've been doing for the, you know, maybe always, but certainly so intentionally over the last, I don't know, five years, but even more so now is a process called co-creation, where we are starting with that individual and inviting the users. And I think you do a lot of this in your work. You may not call it that, but inviting the users are the community to participate in their own destiny, which is kind of goes against what we all learned in design school, right? So it's fascinating, but I think it builds that engagement and ownership, and we're all in the boat rowing together, when you actually um, engage the users and let them participate. And when they walk into the new office space or neighborhood, they each can look and say, oh, that came out of that conversation, or I helped make that. Right. It's a more collaborative thing. Right. And they feel like they're a part of that process, which is important. So. Can we get an example of that? Like through the design process, does that mean you're engaging with the actual end users, the employees versus the executives as a first step? It, it's all of the above. Yeah. We, we start with the, obviously the executives, because we have to understand the mission and vision and business performa of the company and not what they want it to look like, but really what are you trying to do and why? What's their why? That's another question, right? What's your why? And then once you understand that, you become the ambassador or the advocate for that with the employees. So for example, a specific is we did Publicis new headquarters Mm -hmm. in downtown Boston and we engaged 2000 employees and we really talked to them. Obviously, we had to do that through large town halls and so forth. But we had 171 ambassadors that actually sat around conference tables with us, and they helped design and plan their own environments. And so we had to give, as designers, we had to give up a little bit of control and say, hey, it's not about what we're trying to, what we think it should be. It's what you need to be successful. And the outcomes were very different, but I can, um, I'm happy to set, report that when they did return to the office after we finished this whole process, the engagement and the retention and all of that was off the charts. Drew, you know what's interesting? I think, so we've spent less time at Graffito working with Elizabeth and her team than, for example, with David and his team. And in that work, we're less focused on corporate clients and interiors and much more focused on master planning work. You know, and there are multiple examples of this, usually in neighborhood scale, but it's it's interesting. It resonates. It's a very similar process. Same thing. Right? You're, you're working with the developer and the landowner and their overall vision of what they're trying to accomplish, but you're really trying at its best, the process is such where you're going back for feedback to the existing community and the, the end users, the users of the real estate, the community members, the small businesses to understand kind of how this neighbor can work for them. So it is the same process. It's exactly the same yeah. process. Because if it doesn't work for them, it's not going to work. Yeah. Game over. I'm going to start it. Work. When I meet people, I'm going to ask them what their why is. That's like one of my favorite new questions. What's your why? Uh, 
an office's interior isn't always visible from the outside, but do you think about how the interior is designed based on the neighborhood they're in? Or do they serve as some sort of relief from the outside world? How do you approach sort of the neighborhood in which a building will sit? I think context has so much to do with everything, but we start, we start with context and storytelling, right? What is the story you're trying to communicate to your guest or your employee or your student or whatever? So you combine that with the context you're in, and I think that makes better place. If you turn your back on the neighborhood, that's never a good thing. I read that a lot of these tech campuses are not really going to happen anymore, that th- that's sort of in the past based on what's going on. And I think that is going to your point is, is a good thing because now we don't have to build neighborhoods and communities that can be isolated. They can be sort of integrated into these communities that already exist. Right. You look at major universities that have thriving campuses, right? They are always blurring those edges around the community and the university. And we live that here. Kendall Square. That's what you guys do all day long. Yeah. It's just, you know, it came up in our conversation with CA, which I know you listen to, and it comes up in so many of our client conversations of late that I think universities are so well equipped for that kind of work, even though there is the historic town and gown dynamic that is present in so many so many urban contexts, Boston, Cambridge included, but because these universities take a longer term perspective, that work can actually be more meaningful. Um, And there's more room for experimentation. There's oftentimes more room for iteration. And one of the concerns I have about precisely what Drew is saying, as these corporate campuses, no one's going to call them campuses anymore, but as these, as these, um, corporate communities try to do a better job meshing with the urban context they're in, there are some real tensions there. And, you know, that's something that we deal with in our projects a lot, which is that, you know, you talk to the COO or a CFO, you know, on a project, you know, large tenant, couple hundred thousand square feet in a building in the urban context, they're very focused on the needs of their employees. And oftentimes the developer uh, is very focused on commitments they've made to the community and kind of making particularly the ground plane of the building, we'll call it porous, right? A word that's thrown out all the time. But their core tenant is also thinking about things like security and private events. And we have a hard time candidly trying to manage some of those tensions at times. Excuse the rant, but I'm curious how you approach those conversations because you're ve- you're oftentimes talking to the, the real estate user, the corporation. Like, how do you think we solve for that? Because it's there, and I don't think that's going away. You beat me to it. I was going to ask you the same question. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, but one answer I would have is, I think you're beginning. We're beginning to see, and, and I would have asked the question maybe more uh, specifically around what's going to happen to the ground plane. Yeah. In all of these places, but my own answer to my question would be to seeing the companies come downstairs, right? Revealing, and Drew, you said, is it, uh, is the workplace a a getaway from the community or you, but I think the barriers are breaking down and you, you're going to see the corporate environment moving to the ground plane and exposing more of themselves 
to their community and their world and tr and trying to knit those two things together for many reasons um, because diversity and inclusion is good for business um, and it's also good for recruiting um, and, st and storytelling. So I, I don't know if you're seeing that as, as corporate tenants are thinking about what am I going to put on that first floor and what do I want to, what story do I want to tell? One of the connections between these real estate users and the communities in which they're located in for those employers that really care about diversity, equity, inclusion is going to be how you take the learning you were talking about and the training and you apply it to the communities in which these corporations are within. How do you provide opportunities for young people working in the urban context so that, yeah, they're accessing your building on the ground floor, but their employment opportunities on the fifth floor mm. when they finish high school, finish college, right? And how do we use that connection within these urban neighborhoods to facilitate not just more kind of near-term belonging and inclusion, which by the way, I think is a really hard thing in like brand new buildings, how you invite the neighborhood in, separate topic, but, but how do you create real employment opportunities for folks who have been traditionally and historically excluded from working in American corporations? Have you seen examples of that being successful or is this just something that you're trying to implement and trying to figure out? You know, it's interesting. I think I can tell you a lot of examples where corporations have tried and failed. Um, are there specific examples, I think the question, Drew, is are there specific examples where upstairs real estate users have thought about their building as a way of reaching out to the community to provide opportunities for young people, for example, of color? Yeah. I haven't seen that many. I'm sure they're out there. And a lot of people are trying. Yeah, I think we're at the beginning of that conversation, which is exciting because there isn't an answer. So working with you guys and us guys with the yeah. upstairs user, as you said. Um, and as when I'm talking about education, you know, the, I can't remember what the statistic is, but corporate America spends a lot of money on um, educating executives and management, right? And that curve is going up by the millions every year. But the other place where you're going to see upskilling happen at huge numbers is where you're talking about, Jesse. So now just think that cashiers, yep. are that's going to be gone almost. And the pandemic probably just closed the door on that job. So all of those kinds of positions that work for these big companies, they've got to be, they're valuable assets, right? They have already know the culture. They're part of the um, family. So how do we retrain those positions, and that's going to be huge numbers. Yeah, it's interesting. I think the universities, like there are many examples. I know Northeastern is striving on a project that Graffito and Alcas have worked on together. MIT is doing is going to do amazing things at Volpe, I believe. Harvard through the Ed Portal. But the difference between the universities that are doing some of this really meaningful work is that the the question is they're not employing people in the same way a life science company or a tech company is. So outside of the university context, can these companies on their own find ways of leveraging their real estate to move people up the corporate ladder into positions of leadership and power that wouldn't normally have had the opportunity because of the biases and in, in the way in which they recruit and, and retain talent? That's the big question. Hmm. That's our homework assignment. Let's figure out a corporation is doing it well. Doing it well and doing it and what is the space they're doing it in? Yeah. And why does that 
how does that impact their success? You know, Alka's Man Freddy's a firm you've probably designed and had built because a lot of designers design. We'll see if, you know, sometimes stuff doesn't always get built, but your designs have resulted in construction in this city that, you know, it's hard to imagine there's another firm that's designed as much stuff that's been built in Boston over the last 10 years. But at the same time, and at various different scales, right? But at the same time, you're working on stuff throughout the country, but you're still very much based in Boston. As a firm, are there... Are there cities you've gone to of late where you see what they're doing and it's like, wow, like we could use more of that in Boston or like, whoa, that is really interesting and we should bring that to our practice because I feel like you're probably often taken to these other cities to, to, to sprinkle a little of the Boston Cambridge sauce, but in the other direction, you know, right? In the other direction, you know, where have you been recently that's, that's inspirational to, to, to some of your practice here in this city? There's always something inspirational everywhere you go, right? Um, and then it goes back to your context question. I think you can't be artificial and bring Kindle Square. To, we're doing a huge project in Houston right now, right? And, of course, that's what everybody says. We want to be the most innovative square mile in the world. What's that secret sauce? And just give me some of that, and we'll be good. Just move Harvard and MIT to Houston. Yeah, exactly. Done. They ask either way. They <laughs> yeah. almost know. But, the, but they are asking the right question. Yeah. It's like, what was their secret sauce and how do I find mine, right? So in, in Houston, what is the context in Houston and what are their advantages? And they have more hospital beds than any place in the world, mm. right? And anyway, it just goes, so what are your unique, what's the unique recipe for you? Um, I just got back from Mexico. So that's, I'm high on um, San Miguel, day in day Mexico right now, which is um, a small 1700s world heritage site um, where there's booming creativity going on, artists and makers and um, technology within this environment that hasn't really um, changed that much. So I, I'm, I, I'm processing that right now of is it the physical environment that hasn't changed much? Because it sounds like the... The, the physical environment. Yeah. Because yeah. right. the makers, I'm sure, are changing constantly. Right. Yeah. But it's such a cool context to, to be as this thing is being birthed and these people are making and doing. And, and of course, they've always had amazing artisans there. Yeah. But now with the, the new designers moving in, working with the old artisans and bringing that up was just so thrilling that ecosystem that, yeah we talked about designs moving forward and the way you're thinking about offices i'm curious if any clients or projects that you've finished come back to you and say well it's beautiful it's done but like now what we have to go back and rethink it is this happening for you i'm happy to say no <laughs> because i it goes back to that human-centric it was design. already part of your practice right if you think about the individual the health and wellness the form follows function, the work, it's hard to really go off the rails. And now you can double down on that. Right. <laughs> you no, know, it's like, well, we, we told you this from the start, and now this is basically really coming to fruition more than I think anybody ever imagined. We, we, have, we are having clients who are coming back saying, give me more of that. Oh, right. interesting. Right, because it all goes back to where we started. It's, the workplace is no longer a mandate. So it has to be a magnet. So give me more magnet. Get, help me find reasons to make this place really attractive 
So somebody will want to come to the office. Right. And what is the process to get there? And that goes back to the co-creation process. So we've spent a lot of time with our existing clients on listening tours, like listening and check-in points throughout this pandemic. Like, what are you thinking? What's the pulse? Um, and what what's going to make you successful, whether it's at home or here? Or, you know, so it's a lot of that patience and not having to pull a trigger immediately. Just listen. Yeah, the one thing that I get scared about, curious to get your reaction on, we talked about this as a team yesterday for a while. Um, there is this rush and this sense of urgency that I think all these corporate actors, um, real estate developers, and even certain cities have to get things done. And when you start talking about the rate of change, like I think that actually facilitates people's feeling like we got to move faster. But in an odd way, to do this right, to, to create more vibrant, inclusive, interesting neighborhoods, sometimes we have to slow down. And to your point, part of that process is doing more listening. So that's one of the things we're also trying to think about is that how do we resist the fact that things are moving so fast and our clients want things done so quickly with the reality that moving super fast isn't oftentimes the best way to get the right result don't have the answer, but we spent, I mean, like it's this to get is a result. Yeah. I mean, and they're more focused on getting a result than the right result. And you must experience the same thing in all of your clients. Like they want to come on in, figure it out. Let's go. Let's go. Or they think it can be compressed. Exactly. In the design world, in graphic design anyway, people are like, we need a logo in a week. And I'm like, well, that means I'm only going to have taken five showers or six showers. And I need more time to just think and be creative. You, it's almost impossible to compress it. Like it needs time and it's really hard for people to understand. Maybe we should use our um, clients in life sciences as a model, right? An analogy. They don't make the drug and stick it into your arm. Yeah. Right? We go, they go through iterations and that's what it takes to do this right. We talk about, and Jesse used the word flexibility. Flexibility is the name of the game. But now define that. What does that really mean in a community, in physical space, and all of those things? So that's kind of goes back to what's your why and what's your flex, what define flexibility with me? Mm. And um, are, do you feel that same thing? Do you feel like you need to slow clients down sometimes? Well, I, I'm a huge advocate of the process, right? Now more than ever. Like, let's make the process, uh, give it time. To listen, and and most clients are saying, "Oh, let's do. We can do that in six months. You know, you you'll do the design in six weeks, and then we'll document." Blah blah blah. It's like, yes, we can do that, but you won't get the same results. The more you put into the process, absolutely, the better the outcome. The more you exercise, the better the football player you are. You always look at something. You say, "What if we had another month?" What more could we have done? I mean, obviously, you reach a point where you're like, this is good. It feels really good, and it's done. But I'm, I'm old, personally always like, if I had another month with this, I think it would be better. Like, it, it would be if, different. If you had another month to test, iterate, yes. to have users, in our case, less so the graphic design. Well, I, you have user interface. Let the users come in and and understand what that means and then tweak it and move on. So I'm a big believer in prototyping. Yeah. And you got to have time to do that. 
Yeah, it would be so great if a client just said, how much time do you need? <laughs> Versus like, we need this done in 60 days or 90 days. It would be such a different way of looking at things. Well, I, I, this is one way I say it is, if you look at projects where we have had the time to embed ourselves with the employee population or the community and the outcomes versus the ones we didn't. Yep. So the ones where we applied the co-creation process, you look now at the employee um, surveys of happiness, wellness, all that stuff, rate much higher than the ones that you haven't given that upfront process of engagement to. So, so that you can quantify it that way. Well, it's interesting. I mean, so many of the projects that folks come to us and say, hey, we want something like this. I actually think every single one of those projects is something that we've spent years working on. But yet our clients are would be clients. They don't see it that way. No, they're like, we want to go. You know, is 120 days enough for you to figure out our activation strategy for the ground floor of this 10 acres? It's like, come on. <laughs> All Elizabeth, right. thank you so much for coming in. Do you go by Elizabeth, full name? Because I have an, I, my sister's Elizabeth. Well, I go by Elizabeth, I, and I enjoyed hearing C A Webb. You answered what C A stood for, but my everybody calls me E O L. E O L is it Elizabeth Owen Lowry? And I was like, oh, C I'm like C A. E O L. I like E O L. <laughs> so many people are so close to C A, and I ask them, what does C A stand for? They're like, I have no idea. <laughs> like, Can no, you no, ask her? And, and Jesse like, says it's C A Webb. C.A. Webb. Yeah, that's why I said the whole name. You got to say the whole name. And C.A., if you're listening, the whole reason we had you on was to figure that out. It was nice to talk to you. But that's really ultimately. Thank you so much for coming in. This is really special to have you. We hope to have you back at some point. If something else comes up um, that's interesting, we'll have you in. Not we'll too talk. soon. No rush. We're going to slow it down. Absolutely. <laughs> well, um, hopefully I see, I'll see you before that and we can continue yes. these conversations. We definitely won't wait for the next pandemic to have you in. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you so much. It was a delight. Thanks, Thanks for having me. You just listened to another amazing episode of the Graffito podcast. Jesse, another one down. We're almost done with the season. I know. Which means people won't be able to hear our lovely voices until fall, probably. Yeah. Unless they come in and say hello. But everybody can kind of catch up in case they missed any over like their summer vacation. I'm assuming most people have heard every episode. Yeah. Like my mom and dad. Hi, mom and dad. They probably heard every episode. Yeah, my dad doesn't listen. It's really upsetting. I'll he comments sometimes on Instagram, like, yeah, "Hey, right. this is, you know." But um, <laughs> I see those come through. It actually hurts my brain to think about my dad on Instagram. <laughs> it hurts my brain to picture my parents listening to this because I do say some things I'm probably not either too proud of or it's about them. Anyway, thank you all for listening. If you need to know more about the podcast, you can go to graffito.com and click on the podcast tab. Or as Jesse likes to say, he'll just give you the whole address graffito.com slash podcast yeah slash forward slash we determined yeah forward slash yeah uh twitter at graffito podcast if you want to find out what's going on with the podcast and every once in a while we crack a joke here and there on twitter uh we try and be affable i'm gonna follow graffito podcast on i hope twitter. you do i've tagged you on some things I'm and you don't reply. i haven't been on twitter in like years <laughs> I think you might not be the only one because we only have like 35 people. I'm hoping that's the reason. No, I think uh, other people are on Twitter. So yeah, follow us there. Learn uh, about us on the website. You can also write us during the off season, as they say, since we're almost done with this one. Graffito at, no, podcast 
at graffito.com. Any questions or comments, we welcome them. Also, any suggested guests you might have, let us know. Yeah, suggested guests, season three. Yeah, season three. We're already building that list. It's going to be good. So stay tuned and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.